So this summer, my wife Jenny and I had the blessing and amazing opportunity to buy our first home. And uh, I could tell you lots about that process, but I want to focus on a, a certain part of it that if you've bought a home, you probably know this experience. So it was in June that we were searching for houses and we looked in a few different places. And finally, we found the one that we really liked uh, down in Peppenbrook, which is just close to the church here. And uh, the price was right. And actually, uh, the Lord led us to this house. The, the price had come down $60,000 from their original asking price and, and into the range in, in which we could afford. And so we, we decided we wanted to put in the offer. And so we told our realtor to you know, get the paperwork together and we sent it to the sellers. And there, there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth. Uh, and uh, eventually, we had a, a signed agreement with subjects to, be co- to come off in about 10 days. And so we had the house inspection done and we got the financing uh, all approved and it was all good to go. And the subjects came off and there was the, the email that came from the realtor that said, congratulations, you have bought a home. And uh, it was a, a kind of a funny moment because it was the sense of excitement, like, like, all right, we did it. That's awesome. And yet we're not living there yet. And the, the move-in date was on August the 30th, and this was July the 8th. And so there was seven or eight weeks where we knew that we'd purchased a house, and yet we weren't living there yet. And not only were we not living there yet, we were actually paying somebody else to live in a house that belonged to them. We, we were renting at the time, and, and we'd been there for two and a half years. We really liked it, and we were sad to leave. But the reality was we had bought a house, and yet we were paying to live in somebody else's house still. And the reality was even more strange about five days before we moved in was the closing date of the sale. That's the day when you go to the lawyer and you send the money. And so now we had bought and purchased a house, but we were still living in somebody else's house and paying someone to live there. There's this odd dynamic that you've probably experienced if you've purchased a home like that. And and here's where I'm, I'm going with that. As disciples of Jesus, we are invited to live in Jesus, to live with him. Jesus says this in John 15, if you remain in me, I will remain in you and you will bear much fruit. That word remain could be translated abide, which is connected to our English word abode, which means home. So Jesus is saying, stay at home with me. And when you do that, you will experience a life that is productive. You will bear much fruit. However, I think there are many believers who who know that they want to live at home with Jesus, but are actually paying to live in somebody else's house. They're living on a shaky foundation. They're living because they've believed lies about themselves or about God or about how this world works. And they're not actually living at home with Jesus. They're, they're actually paying rent to live in the enemy's house. And they, they pay this rent because they live with this sense of fear or anxiety or uncertainty or lack of joy or lack of the peace that could be theirs. But Jesus invites us to be at home with him, to live with him, to live in him. And when we do that, we'll experience peace. So where do you want to live? That's the question I ask you today. We get to the final stage of our discipleship pathway today, and we've been envisioning the discipleship journey as a target, uh, an arrow flying towards a target. And to be a disciple means to be a learner and to be an apprentice. And so in Christian discipleship, we are learning and apprenticing under Jesus because we want to become like him. That's the end goal. And so we've identified four stages that we might move through, and it's not a linear journey for everyone 
uh, and, and we move kind of up and down and backwards and forwards at times. But these four stages we generally move through. The first one we looked at was exploring Christ. These are people who are asking big questions about meaning and purpose and how Jesus might fit into that. And so the catalyst to, towards growth for them is going to be discovering truth, discovering who Jesus is, finding the answers to some of their questions. The next stage that we looked at was growing in Christ. So these are people who have now committed themselves to Jesus, but are still spiritual infants. They need to grow. They need to put on spiritual muscle. And so we said that the discipline here, or the, the catalyst here is practicing disciplines. These people need to have daily and weekly routines in which they can connect with Jesus. Remember, we said there's a spiritual stop sign that we come to each day where God invites us to be in his presence. The next stage, which Bobby and Matt took us, well, took us through so well last week, was, was maturing in Christ. So these are people now who have established some of these disciplines in their lives, and they are committed to following Jesus with everything that they have. And the catalyst for them is, mission, is living on mission. So they need to see every part of their lives as serving the mission that Christ has given. Today, we get to the last stage, which is abiding in Christ, living in Christ, being at home with Jesus. So what characterizes people who are abiding in Christ? Well, these are people who are deeply committed to routines that help them to connect with Jesus. Prayer is very important to these people. Studying scripture is very important. Uh, having times of silence and, and simplicity and, and Sabbath, times where they can practice spiritual disciplines that take them deeper. Uh, it's not uncommon for you to hear a person who is abiding in Christ talk about how they were having a prayer time with the Lord and the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Or they were studying the scripture and God revealed a truth to them that they hadn't seen before. Or they needed to make a decision and they said, I, I felt like God was directing me in this way. They, they hear from God. They they talk with God. They listen for his voice. People who are abiding in Christ are often leaders. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're leaders in the church, although they might be pastors or missionaries or people who serve in Christian organizations. But there are many people who are abiding in Christ who, who are not in formal Christian ministry, but see themselves as Christ's ambassadors wherever they go. So they are business leaders who know that their business is not a way for them to, to find financial gain. It's actually a way to serve the kingdom. Uh, these are school teachers and electricians and construction workers and bus drivers and all kinds of other occupations who are committed to using the place where God has put them to live on mission for him. Uh, if they're not in formal leadership, they are often, if not always, intentionally investing in other people. They might be mentoring other people or reading the scriptures for other people or intentionally praying for other people. This is something that they find very important. The key catalyst for people who are in this stage is to submit humbly. Submitting humbly to God over and over and over again. Daily, they submit humbly to God. So what we want to do today as we study this, uh, this stage in the discipleship journey as we'll turn to the book of Mark, which we've been using as our discipleship manual through this series and we will continue to do until Easter. And we're going to look at three stories that Mark tells. And in these three stories, there's a common theme. Jesus starts the story by telling his disciples he's about to go and die. And in all three of the stories, the disciples respond very poorly. <laughs> I told you a few weeks ago that sometimes in, in Mark, the disciples are used as a, a foil 
A foil is a literary device that, that shows a character embracing the wrong kinds of qualities or characteristics. And that highlights for us what the right kind of characteristics are. There's a compare and contrast here. And in these three stories, the disciples are foils for us. They show us what we shouldn't do. And they have been invited to, to abide with Jesus, to live with him, to, to be a part of his ministry, to experience this intimate fellowship with Jesus that nobody else had the opportunity to experience. And yet, there were lies that they believed. They chose to live somewhere else because of these lies. And these lies influenced their ability to connect with Jesus. And so I'm going to present these three stories and we're going to look at the three lies that the disciples believe because these lies are sometimes things that we believe and they can block us from entering into this abiding in Christ uh, stage of the discipleship journey. And so as we go through them, I invite you to, to uh, do some, some self-analysis and see where do I see these lies in my life? And are they blocking me from further intimacy with Jesus? As we talk about abiding in Christ, I also want to say at the front that there could be two possible reactions here. You might hear about people who are abiding in Christ and feel motivated. You see that that's something that you want. It's, it's something that you admire in other people and you want to work towards that. And so you're going to take the next steps in order to get there. And so I affirm that if that's what you feel, uh, that you need to take the next steps so that you can continue to grow towards this stage. However, the other reaction might be to be demotivated, to say that people who are abiding in Christ are so far beyond me that I could never get there. Now, maybe you're in, in an earlier stage exploring Christ or growing in Christ, and abiding in Christ seems like a different life. So I want to encourage you to actually take your eyesight a little bit further back on the discipleship journey and focus on what the next step is for you to grow. And maybe abiding in Christ is something that, that is a little bit further ahead for you in your journey, but you can get there, but you need to take the next step and then the next step and then the next step. So three stories. The first one we find in Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 31. This is actually the story that Bobby and Matt uh, took us through last week. So I won't spend a lot of time here because they did a great job with it, but I want to highlight a lie that the disciples believe here. So here's the story. Verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So interesting story. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you shouldn't talk like that. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter for that response. So what's the lie that Peter and the disciples believe here that keep them from entering into the mission of Jesus? I think the lie is this. They believe that the discipleship journey should not involve suffering. They believe that the discipleship journey should not involve suffering. Jesus, don't talk about suffering. You're not going to suffer. You're going to be victorious which doesn't include suffering. So don't talk about dying. That's not going to be part of the journey. Of course, the, the truth that we can cling to here is that abiding disciples submit humbly to God's redemptive work, even when it involves suffering. Now, I'm not smart enough to answer all of the questions about why suffering exists and 
how God interacts with suffering and, and why we have to suffer. But I do know that suffering can be used in our lives for, in really good ways. It can be used redemptively to bring about really good things. Perhaps God is refining your character or mine when we go through experiences of suffering. Uh, perhaps God is using your suffering to help somebody else. Perhaps God is helping you to be stronger for the next time when you have to go through a difficult experience. There was an experience of suffering in my life, and I, when I went through it, I said, why am I going through this? This is so awful. I, God, I, you told me you'd be with me, but you seem so far away. And it wasn't until years later that a series of events had happened in which a person finally came to faith. And I could tie that back to the, the moment that I went through suffering. And I realized then that my suffering actually wasn't about me at all. It was about the kingdom of God and what God wanted to do for this other person. So God can use suffering redemptively, but often we cling to the lie that if we are disciples of Jesus, if God really loves me, he won't allow me to suffer. And we can get so confused and disoriented in the middle of suffering. And when we cling to that lie, we actually block ourselves from abiding in Christ. Because disciples who are abiding in Christ humbly submit, even if it means embracing suffering in the moment. Now, we read various passages in uh, the New Testament where it talks about suffering. Paul says in Romans that um, in Romans 8.28, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Uh, Even though we go through terrible things in life, God is the master of turning what seems like it's evil into something that's actually really good. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about a time he was in uh, intense suffering. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. So Paul is saying, I went through this terrible experience of suffering, but it brought about a good thing, obedience in my life. Or Hebrews 12, sometimes God is disciplining us and hardship is used in that way to refine us. So the writer of Hebrews says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? In verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The writer of Hebrews even says at one point that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. I figure that one out. So certainly we can learn obedience through what we suffer. And Jesus' example here was showing us that suffering was a part of the plan. He says this to Peter that this is the plan. I am going to go suffer and I am going to go and die. But it's part of God's plan. It's how I'm going to achieve victory. It's how I'm going to achieve the redemption of the world. And so I'd say rather than saying that suffering is not or should not be a part of the discipleship journey, we should actually think that suffering is necessary for the discipleship journey. Because through it, God makes us into who we need to be. 
So we humbly submit to God even when it involves suffering. That doesn't mean we go out looking for suffering. It doesn't mean that we even enjoy it in the moment, right? David didn't enjoy his suffering when he went through it in the moment. He wrote lament psalms crying out to God. But instead of asking the why question, why God are you allowing this to happen to me? The better question for abiding disciples is how should I endure this suffering so that there will be good things produced? Abiding disciples live in the presence of Jesus by humbly submitting to him. Okay, next story. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and three days later he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to him, said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So again, very interesting story. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And the disciples respond with silence. And then with an argument about who is the greatest out of all of them. Uh, It seems like an odd response. Now, I don't know exactly how the argument between the disciples went, but I imagine that they compared resumes, right? I've done this and I've done this and I've accomplished this. and, And look at the things that I've done compared to the things that you've done. You know, there is a one upmanship that was present here. I'm better than you because I've done X or done Y. What's the lie that they believe that kept them from engaging in Jesus' mission? I I think we could say it like this. The lie is that my value or my identity or my worth are based on my performance. I am great because of the things that I have done. That's how I prove my worth. The truth, of course, is that the issue of my value was settled at the cross. And Jesus determined that we were worth uh, his own life. He sacrificed himself for us. That should be enough for us to know our worth. But how many of us buy into this lie that how we perform is, is, uh, is correlated with how valuable we actually are? This year has been a, a year of, of growing and learning for me. And one of the things that I've learned about myself is that this lie is present under the surface for me. How I perform is how valuable I am. So when I perform well, I can feel really proud and good about myself. And when I perform poorly, I can feel really poorly about myself and question my value. And part of this discovery for me uh, went back into my childhood to discover where this came from. And And so uh, if this is a lie that that you see in your life, I invite you to go into your own life story too and see where it came from. I can remember when I was five years old, uh, when I started kindergarten. So my birthday is January the 3rd, so right at the beginning of the year. So when kindergarten started for me, I was five years old and nine months. Uh, My parents had tried to get me in the year before when I was four years and nine months, but they said, no, you have to be five. So there I was in kindergarten, and I I don't want to boast about my five-year-old self, but kindergarten was pretty easy for me. Uh, I can remember sitting in the circle with my classmates, and we were learning the days of the week, and my teacher was sitting there saying, so class, what day is it today? 
And I remember just looking at my classmates who were all silent thinking, it's Wednesday, people. This is not difficult. And uh, so that was my kindergarten experience. And by Christmas time, my parents and my teachers started talking about moving me to grade one. And so we decided that after Christmas, we would do a bit of a hybrid. We would do my morning kindergarten class like normal, and then I'd go to grade one for the afternoon. And if that went well, then I would stay in grade one for the rest of the year. And so I remember very clearly my then six-year-old self, uh, midday uh, uh, at school, kindergarten class was over, and my teacher, Mrs. Van Brummelen at Langley Christian Elementary School, took me out into the hallway once everyone had left and walked me down across the hall to Miss Speaksma's grade one class. And I can remember being in that hallway and thinking to myself, I need to prove to these people that I belong here. I need to show that I am smart enough to be in grade one. And so I walked into the class and there is uh, tables, round tables, four or five kids around each table. And there is colored shapes hanging from the ceiling over these tables. And I remember walking in and thinking, okay, that's a black square, and that's a red circle, and that's a blue rectangle, and that's a green triangle. Because if somebody asked me, I wanted to have a quick answer. I know what that is. And I remember throwing myself into spelling. Spelling was fascinating for me. I can remember the librarian coming to our class and teaching us how to spell the word encyclopedia, but spelling it the old way with the extra A in there. And I love that. I love being able to know those big words. And it was driven by this desire to show people that I belonged in that class. My performance determined my value. So in hindsight, I'm glad my parents moved me into grade one that year. That was a good decision for me. But it also had this unintended side effect. And I can see at various points in my life where this crops up again and again. The the issue of my value is determined by my performance. And here's the thing, if, if, you, if you find yourself buying into that lie too, when we buy into the performance lie, we never know where we stand in relation to other people. Because my performance yesterday might have been good enough, but I have to prove myself again today, and I'm not sure if you're going to like it today compared to yesterday. It's very closely connected to a, a, a people-pleasing desire, right? That the issue of my value is dependent upon whether you like me. And it's an exhausting place to be, It feels like running on a hamster wheel because you continually have to work and work and work and work to make sure that your performance is good enough and that people are happy with you. It's a dangerous place to live. It's a lie. It's a shaky foundation. And it blocks us from abiding with Jesus, from living with him when we're too concerned about performance and what other people will think. And we can have confidence in God's love. Right, Romans 5 verse 5 says it like this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then Romans 8, Paul continues on this train of thought, starting in verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, or might I add failure at performance? In verse 37, no, in all those things we are more than conquerors through through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even the opinions of other people about you, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Abiding disciples live in the presence of Jesus by humbly submitting to him, and humbly submitting our entire selves, our identities to him, and believing what he says 
is true about us, not the lies we are tempted to believe. And Jesus shows the disciples here that their faith ought to be childlike. So he takes a child to them and he says, if if you want to be first, you need to be the very last. You need to adopt a childlike faith. And when you do so, you are secure in your identity because you know who Jesus says that you are. Childlike faith is a sign of an abiding disciple. Submit yourself before your heavenly father. And Jesus would go on to demonstrate this by submitting himself to his heavenly father. Even as the second member of the Trinity, God himself, he submitted himself to God the father and went to the cross. So now Mark chapter 10, third story, starting in verse 32. They, the disciples and Jesus, were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid because they were going to Jerusalem where they believed there was danger. Again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. By the way, if anyone starts a question that way, you should say no immediately. But Jesus graciously says to them, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? By that, he means that the cup is a symbol of God's will for a person. And baptism is not referring to literal baptism here. It's actually referring to being submerged into the experience that Jesus was about to to go through. Can you handle the suffering that I'm about to walk through, in essence? We can, they answered. Not sure they fully understood what what that meant. But kudos to them for being willing to sign up for whatever it was. Jesus said, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I baptize with. In other words, you will have your experience of suffering for me in your life. And they would. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And I don't think they were indignant with James and John because of the question that they asked. They were indignant because James and John beat them to asking Jesus the same question. They wanted those spots for themselves. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So what was the lie here that the disciples were standing on that blocked them from engaging in intimacy with Jesus and the mission that Jesus called them to? Here's the lie. I'm only as good as the amount of power that I hold. I'm only as good as the amount of power that I hold. The corresponding truth is that abiding disciples humbly serve God and others instead of pursuing power and status. But the disciples got this mixed up. They put the crown before the cross. 
And of course, along with that came their expectations that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. So they wanted influence in this kingdom. And maybe they even wanted influence so that they could do really good things for people. But Jesus said to them, the way that I'm going to achieve victory, the way that I'm going to win, the way that I'm going to accomplish redemption for the world is not through political power, not through political might. It's actually through humbly serving people to the point where I will give up my own life to die for the sins of the world. It's not about power. It's not about might. It's about humble submission to God. Jesus didn't come for a political kingdom. He didn't say that's how victory will be won in our world. Victory will come as we serve. Now, there's a special warning here, I think, for people who are in this abiding in Christ stage. So if that's you, if you find yourself in this abiding in Christ stage and you identify with what uh, describes a disciple who's abiding in Christ, there's a special warning for you. The disciples were among the most likely to be mature at that stage, right? They weren't always. We see it in these three stories. But they spent a lot of time with Jesus. And so if we would expect anyone to have it together, it would have been them. And yet, they failed over and over again. The warning is this. Those of, uh, those of you who seem like you are abiding in Christ are often given positions of leadership. And that might be leadership in the church. It might be leadership elsewhere. But the moment that leadership turns to being about power and influence rather than serving the people you are called to lead, that is the moment at which you've missed the point. And we have seen far too many Christian leaders fall over the years. Because at one point or another, they were called into leadership. They probably approached it with all the best intentions. But for one reason or another, the power of the position or the influence that they could wield caused them to cling to that rather than the leadership mandate that they were given to serve people. And it caused them to fall. So those of you who are mature in the faith and have been given leadership, there is a special warning to you from this story that you too can fall if you're not careful. We are not called to power Though we need leaders, of course we need leaders in the church and in society. We need Christian leaders who can help other people to grow. But the point is not to grab onto power. The point is to serve those you are called to serve. And we're to do so in the same manner that Jesus did. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as, as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. It reminds us of what Peter says in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he, that he may lift you up in due time. Self-promotion is not our job. Grasping at power is not our job. 
submitting ourselves first to God and then serving others is what we are called to. And God will take care of the promotion if there's any to be had in this life. There certainly will be reward in heaven. Abiding disciples live in the presence of Jesus by submitting humbly to him. So where would you say that you are believing lies and not living with Jesus? Where are you paying rent to live in the enemy's house? And how can you identify what that lie is? Be self-aware enough to know what it is that you're believing that's not true. And how can you embrace the truth, hold on to it, and then act on it so that you can reinforce that truth in your life? We're going to take one more look at the discipleship pathway here as we close. And as we look at it, as it comes up on your screen, if I was to give you a, a marker here and you could go and mark your television screen or computer screen or whatever, put a little X where you are on the journey. Where would you put yourself? Are you exploring Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Are you maturing in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? Or are you somewhere in between? One of those stages. Once you've identified where you are, you can ask yourselves, how do I get to the next step? What's the next thing that I need to do? What kind of discipline could I take on? How can I see myself living on mission? Where am I not submitting humbly to God? What's that next step? Write it down. Write it down and then review it each day this week. And continue to take steps towards growth in this discipleship journey. We're going to continue thinking about discipleship. We're going to move our way back to the beginning of the book of Mark. Next week, we'll be in Mark chapter 2. And until Easter, we're going to continue to study through this book and see what else Jesus has to say about discipleship, what it means to follow him. My prayer is as we do so, we will continue to grow along this journey and we will help others to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you invite us into relationship with you. We're thankful that you draw us to yourself. You invite us to remain in you, to live in you. And as we do so, you will remain in us and we will produce much fruit for the kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, for when we've made this about ourselves, for when we've believed a lie about who we are or what we're about. Help us to be fully about what you are about. Align our passion with yours. And may we experience more and more intimacy with you as we abide in you, as we seek your face, and as you speak to us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.